Welcome to the Hobcast Book Show, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime, mystery and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of running a creative business in this challenging world. We'll hear from the people who make this possible, the authors, the cover designers and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast Book Show from Hobeck Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. And welcome to the Hobcast Book Show. It is episode number 128. My name is Adrian Hobart. And my name is Rebecca Collins. And together we run Hobeck Books, UK independent publishers of the following four genres. Suspense. Mysteries. Thrillers. And, sus- and uh, crime. Oh, we're really on it today, aren't After we? After 128 goes as well. I know, it's pathetic. Welcome to the show. Uh, we ought to mention who our guest is this week. It's Louise Mumford, who is a writer of psychological fiction. She's based in Wales, and she's also one of the lead lights in Crime Cymru. Yes. The biennial festival held in Aberystwyth. Yeah, we had a lovely chat with Louise, didn't we? We did, yeah. It was great. So loads to go out there, and it's a lovely story to how she got published as well. So yes. uh, we'll, we'll look forward to sharing that with you <laughs> a little later. Now, we were on our travel... Before we get into the news, we want to talk about... What we learnt this week ourselves in person by travelling down to Melksham in Wiltshire. Your brain was blown. It was, yeah. Well, look, I, I, I'm just going to play in a little bit of sound now. That is thunderous sound <laughs> of books. Of books being made. Yeah, we went to see CPI. Uh, Anthony Rowe, um, that's a, a sort of one of the, the branch companies of CPI, who are a massive publishing uh, conglomerate in terms of you know printing books around the world. And um, it was fascinating to yeah. watch the process of, of books being made. Yes, uh, and the way I describe it was a combination of high-tech and traditional artisan methods all working together to produce books absolutely so i think that you know in a in a way they were the sort of uh, the manufacturing version of our catchphrase trad values indie spirit perfect yes if that, Indeed, if that yeah, yeah because they they're, what they're doing is that they maintain extremely high standards that they've had for years and um it's it's interesting what they were saying about the area being such a big hotbed of printing there was quite a lot of companies who in were Wiltshire. based down there, yeah. yeah. And um, so the guys who, who run it are, you know, very keen to maintain the best possible technical standards and produce the best books. But they are moving, you know, in the last 20 years, there's been huge changes in the way that the books are actually manufactured. And the biggest change has been moving between uh, litho printing, which is was the traditional way of doing, yeah. and very very expensive, and inkjet printing, which has become incredibly successful, very very fast. It's very easy to transfer from a digital file into a uh, the, the printed project. You're not making plates; it is inkjet, 
a bit like a gigantic multi-million pound version of the printer you might have at home. Yes, and very impressive that printer was, wasn't it? Well, the we, web printer. Yeah, it was absolutely astonishing. But also, you know, in an adjoining building at CPI, they were, you know, hand-embossing legal texts with gold mm. gold lettering, and that's a, a manual skill with machines that are 50, 60 years old um, and, you know, very, very traditional. They were making also the, the Bibles, the gilded Bible um, copies from the coronation in a very long-winded process. Yeah, and they all have to be checked by hand as well. Yeah, so it was, it was great to see new technology, the, the fact that they're in a position where, for instance, if we have a book that was with CPI and we wanted to get just one copy printed, what they would do is simply look for a print run where uh, they haven't, you know, used all the paper up, for for instance, and say, okay, we'll slip that one in as well and we'll slip another couple of other standalone books and we'll make the print run more worthwhile. And that's how they can do it. And it was extraordinary. But, you know, the... The the efforts they've made also, I think the other thing we should we should mention about CPI was the huge efforts they've made to make it more uh, environmentally friendly, both in the types of paper they're using, but the way the covers are made, the the use of ink, the amount of energy it takes, the sort of paper they use in terms of uh, its sustainability. It was extraordinary. Yeah. And also the recycling process. So if something has gone askew and the, the print isn't quite right on a particular book, and it goes to recycling, off to be pulped and, and turned into recycled paper. I had a bit of an issue with the um, uh, throwaway bin because I wanted to take some of the books. I don't mind a little bit of imperfection. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, I'm with you. Yeah, that's right. And also, the, the, you know, reducing the amount of plastic that's used in the whole process of, like, you know, getting the books to market, uh, putting them on the pallets and, and how much wrap they use and what sort of wrap they use. So yeah, it's a lot of things to consider. Yeah, huge amount. So that's a big emphasis there. And the other big thing is that we've mentioned this on the programme, they have signed a deal with gardeners, which means that if gardeners fall short of a book, they're the big distributors in the UK, and there's a request comes in for a copy of a particular book, they can just simply tell CPI to print another, and they run it across the road, because the Eastbourne plant of CPI <laughs> is opposite the gardeners. And they did say that, didn't they? They said they literally just take the books across the road. <laughs> yeah, which is terrific. So that's another thing, and uh, CPI also have a worldwide network of other printers and other printing firms, which allows you, for instance, if you wanted to do a US edition, which you know, it goes into the US market, it's very, very close to market, then you can get it printed in the United States, but use CPI as your as your middle people. And they also made us very nice sandwiches. They did, yeah. They looked after us. So that was a really, really valuable trip. And um, came, we came back with a great deal of extra enthusiasm. We did. And not only that, we went to Toppings in Bath the day before. And oh, my God, I could have died and gone to heaven in that shop. In fact, I was there for about three quarters of an hour. Mm. Oh, it's amazing. That is what bookshops should be like. Yes. Proper old-fashioned floor-to-ceiling books with ladders that you have to climb to get books on the top shelf and comfy chairs and just just the whole atmosphere was wonderful. Awesome. Well, you know, there is nothing better than a good bookshop. Uh, it has to be said. Right, let's get into to some news. So we've, we've just mentioned our, our trip to, to CPI. And, um, uh, I mean, obviously one of the, Places where books will end up are British libraries and the government's launched a consultation in the UK on proposed changes to the public lending rights scheme 
to ensure that authors are paid their fair share when their work is enjoyed by library users. That sounds like a good thing. This scheme, which provides authors with an income of up to £6,600 a year from loans of their books from libraries in the UK, pays out more than £6 million each year. But, of course, it depends on uh, how many books you actually get lent out. And uh, just looking down here, uh, who are the most lent books in 2021-22, Roald Dahl, Daisy Meadows and Lee Child are among the top ten most popular authors. Hmm. Uh, The the consultation is being... um, Actually, the most lent was Richard Osman's Thursday Murder Club, of course. Why does that not And the most sold as well. Uh, but actually, it's, it's encouraging to think that you know, the maximum we could get was 6,600 quid. Yes, there's a cap, isn't there? Yes, there is. There is. Um, but I, I dare say a lot of indie authors will not be getting anywhere near that. Um, but uh, this consultation goes on till the 6th of August. And uh, I, I just don't know what, quite what they're consulting over, really. Yeah, I wonder whether it's um, about knowledge, because I, I know not every author automatically knows that they can claim public. No, no, right? and, and, and it's, it's, it's slightly difficult if you... Yeah, I mean, they can. Um, it's a bit of a grey area, but more and more of our authors have been, have been chasing up this, this yeah. potential source. But actually getting the books into libraries, with libraries having to cut budgets in terms of acquisition... They're going for the books that people, you know, they know that people are going to want. Yes, for sure. But, you know, it's funny that we make uh, the majority of our audio income comes from library lending in the United States, for instance, through Find Our Way Voices. But I wonder whether the library situation in the United States is different from in the UK, because I know there are a lot of people who can't, um, you know, they they rely more on their local library than they might do in the UK. Because it's just so rural. There's a lot of the US is. Well, also, yeah, I mean, don't forget the price of books in every other part of the world, apart from the UK, is artificially is not artificially. It's it's a, a more reasonable rate of return for the publishers mm. in the sense that, you know, it actually does reflect the cost of making books. And uh, in the UK, since the net book, book agreement was torn up in the, in the late 80s, uh, the fact is that, that cover prices have been incredibly low uh, compared to the actual cost of, of manufacturing and marketing. And so uh, it's artificially held down by things like market, uh, supermarket deals um, and, you know, retailer expectations that, you know, they know they can't sell a book for much more than, you know, eight ninety nine nine ninety nine on a, on a on a fiction book. And um, But unfortunately, as we found out, I mean, although paper prices are coming down again, the inflation in publishing has been huge recently. And yeah. we've talked about this time and time again. There isn't much money in, in a hard, in, in, in hard copy. But I think it does make me think about my childhood. So my parents are both voracious readers and they didn't buy many books. They, all the reading they did or the majority of the reading they did was library. Mm. Well, I think that was a lot more. Yes, I, same for my parents and my childhood was was library books rather than than buying books yes myself as well i would go along to the library i'd have my card it it wouldn't occur to me to buy books until i was maybe sort of early teens and then it was just you know a big deal to spend and looking around me now oh boy (laughs) have you been buying books ever since okay um we'll move away from that story to uh, a positive story which is a new prize uh this is for uh, Scottish writers writing Scotland-set crime novels. 
And this has been announced by HQ, who incidentally are uh, the publishers of our um, of our last guest. Um, that's right. Yeah, Louise was is with HQ, isn't she? So uh, yeah, that's right. Sorry, Louise Mumford is, is with HQ. But anyway, it's an imprint of HarperCollins, and they've announced a ten thousand pound competition to find find unagented Scottish writers writing Scotland's get set crime novels. And this is also in partnership with The Times and Sunday Times in Scotland and Bloody Scotland and 42 Management and Production. And Abir Mukherjee is going to uh, be on the, uh, the the panel. Excellent. Well, so a friend of the programme. He is indeed. A number of other names there. Uh, but you have to uh, submit a 500-word synopsis along with the first five to 10,000 words of the manuscript and a 200-word author biography to hqprize at harpercollins.co.uk and they're open now until the end of October. It's a great opportunity. It is, it is. It's, it's a good prize. So that's lovely to see something new in the market. And the final story we wanted to touch on is something that we've been talking about a lot, which is um, publishers, I think, getting a little oversensitive about books. Uh, the latest one, uh, is to do with Virginia Woolf. Oh, you see, yeah. I mean, so a book written in 1927, To the Lighthouse. A classic. Yep. Now carries a warning that the book reflects the attitudes of its time. Uh, well, obviously. <laughs> yes. Uh, this has been published by Vintage. That's owned by Pen Penguin Random House. And they have printed a disclaimer in a new edition intended for an American readership. So readers opening Wolf's classic novel about the Ramsey family and their Scottish holiday home are now warned in the opening pages. This book was published in 1927 and reflects the attitudes of its time. The publisher's decision to present it as it was originally published is not intended as an endorsement of cultural representations or language contained herein. But Wolf experts have not identified any controversial content in the 100-year-old novel say, I... based on the writer's own treasured childhood holidays to St Ives. I I've read it. I read it. Well, I remember when I read it. I was working at um, Blackwell Science, as it was, and I remember reading it in my lunch hours. And no, there's nothing <laughs> to worry about. But then I also heard on the radio that um, a version of Macbeth was going to uh, carry a trigger warning, <laughs> which made me laugh. Yeah, what for? Like, violence? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, this production of Macbeth may contain violent scenes. I mean, you know, some form of excrement Sherlock, you know. <laughs> Indeed, yes. Oh, my goodness. Well, where does it end? This is the thing. Well, where does all this end? It do well, it doesn't end, does it? Because no. you can do it for everything, everything that's published, any written word, some sort of warning or some sort of disclaimer or some sort oh. of... Right, it does my head in. It really does. <laughs> okay, at which point let's talk to uh, a, a wiser head and, uh, and, and I'd like to speak to Louise Mumford, as we mentioned, is a writer of psychological fiction and uh, she's also a, a school teacher and that comes through strongly uh, in the way that we, we you know, the, the issues and the things we talked about. Yes, and the discipline of writing and all that sort of thing. And Yeah, so let's talk to Louise Mumford. Well, it's a real delight to speak to Louise Mumford. Thank you so much for joining us on the Hobcast. Ah, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. And behind you, the covers of your books. <laughs> oh, they look lovely. I love how you've done the frames. 
Oh yeah, but one has really annoyed me, and um, and it's the hotel. I've made I printed it, and it's slightly smaller than the others. <laughs> there's a bigger, there's a bigger um, white gap around it. It's really bugging me. So oh, I can see what I you mean. I yes, can't... I can see, but I hadn't yeah. noticed that until you my husband it. noticed it straight away. He was like, "That's wrong." <laughs> oh. So yes, yeah. Anyway, dealing with that, dealing with it, dealing with it. <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? I mean, that these are the things that, that can catch you out, and you think, "Oh," because a lot of of, of um in this game is about getting the presentation spot on and it's you know the way a cover is laid out the blurb even the way you know when you get your your manuscript typeset uh you you agonize over all those details are you one of those i mean because we are but are you i i mean obviously my publisher is in charge of the cover and and the kind Mm. of blurb and that so i get a say in that but i i you know, I, I don't imagine that my say would sway them very much um, in terms of that side. But the bit I can control, which is the writing, I'm terribly um, perfectionist about it. You know, I will go through and check that I haven't repeated words, you know, and, you know, all of that sort of stuff. And have I started that chapter in the best way that I possibly could? You know, have I gone straight into the meat of it? Um, yeah, I am. I am a bit of a perfectionist like that. Yeah. But do you find it difficult then to know when when to say when to write at the bottom the end and to yes. say that's it? It's yeah, definitely. it's it's when it's when my lovely editor goes that's it. It's going off to be proofread then. And the general rule is when it's being proofread, you don't change much. No, you'd be a mistake. Very upset editor if you tried to. <laughs> <laughs> this is a mistake. Just don't go into that. So um, so it's when Abby says no, that's it. Now we're done. And then I I can step away because I think being a teacher for so long you kind of do understand that perfection doesn't exist <laughs> you, can, <laughs> you can plan a brilliant lesson and a wasp comes into the window and you know destroys it for you you know or a child throws up in your class or something <laughs> so so I do kind of I can then go you know what that's it it's out in the world now that's that's fantastic I mean that is actually quite a good preparation for for being an author in a way well having um, a child throw up in your well lesson. no but but it is the Better slave plans not quite going to to plan because that's the nature of publishing, really, isn't it's it? The nature I mean, of life. There is no formula to it, so rolling with those punches is is, is a good thing. And it gives um, you thick skin as well. Yeah, so uh, true. Yeah, absolutely. And that that's the other thing. Yeah, you have to be thick skin. I mean, what do your pupils think of the fact you're a published author? Is the, do they know? Oh yeah, some of them. So I've I've um I'm quite lucky actually because my school was was fairly small. So a lot of the the students I'm in contact with, we we go back every year for a kind of alumni day, and um you know I I, I see them on social media. So so they're really kind, you know, and they still call you Miss. <laughs> You'll always got, be Miss. I always I've got to pass people who works at the gym I go to. Um, so I turn up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah every week and then I I leave looking horrendous like covered in sweat um and he still refers to me as miss you're right miss <laughs> go, go for your workout yes you can call me Louise now that is <laughs> you know you are a grown man <laughs> you can actually use my first name um but he still he still doesn't bless him well it's funny things I think if I bumped into one of my teachers from school and we're talking what 30 over 30 years ago I'm sure I'd say hi Miss Padgett <laughs> I know you would you just I don't think I could because I've got old teachers and I still in my head they are Miss Miss Brown Mrs Willis you know they are they're not people (laughs) figures of authority (laughs) it's funny though isn't it I mean 
when you're a pupil and going into then you go into teaching those misconceptions that you perhaps had as the pupil of your teachers uh that you you saw them in a a refracted light that only pupils can have and then when you're actually in the staff room as a member of staff watching it the other way around it it must be how long does that take to get used to because I, i imagine it would take me forever it, you know, it, it took me a while to get my head around the fact that I was the authority figure in the room. Um, I think because I went into, I was 23 when I started teaching um, and I was quite a young 23 and I looked very young, I looked about 12. Um, so it did take me a while, but it's the it's the most brilliant kind of basis for working out who you are as a person because you immediately have to sort out where all your boundaries are what do you accept what do you think is fun what do you think is not fun what do you think you would allow as discipline you know what can where can the lines move a little bit what are you kind of you know you will never move on I never moved on you know pupils had to be polite and they had to raise their hand and they had to hand their working on time and they had to be kind to other children you know it so all of those things I never moved on but I also found that I loved comedy as well I loved it was partly almost like being a stand-up comedian you know when you were doing your job because if you could get them to laugh if you could get them they're with you then you know they're they're already listening um so so yeah it's a brilliant I mean I don't recommend people just going into teaching to find themselves um but I you know it's a it's it's the most brilliant profession to work out who you are as a person definitely mm. yeah because you're always on stage yeah aren't you? and and yeah. they 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 also see they they see you in a certain light because I, I know my children if if I say oh did you know such and such and I say no that's not true because at school they told me this <laughs> I know I know if I and dare to say that sure. teacher's wrong <laughs> yeah, that's a shock because, you know, you can be wrong as well. There, there have been times when, you know, children, I learned that when children asked you questions, you didn't know the answer to, you didn't lie. You just go, well, I'll go away and find that out. And why don't you try and find it out too? We'll see what answers we come up with. Um, but it is, it is very strange to be the authority figure. And I was so separated. I used to have my, like my home life, and my teacher life to the point where I had a teacher wardrobe and my own wardrobe <laughs> because the teacher wardrobe was almost like this kind of costume you put on and then what I wanted to wear like you know when I was just being me just being Louise was totally different um so so yeah I kind of even split it that way as well thinking about it but so, in the back of your sorry but in I, the back of your mind as a teacher at what stage was writing rising in your mind as, as a thing for oh, you to do to chase? Yeah, oh, always you don't as in many professions teaching doesn't give you a lot of time to (laughs) to pursue that and also because I taught English which was a lot of reading and writing and a lot of reading students work you kind of got a little bit sick of just reading and writing you didn't want to then go and produce your own work um, because that was even more reading and writing so I was writing and I was writing um I wrote about two or three books actually while I was a teacher and I did try to send them off but you know they I had a lot to learn they were they were they weren't ready to be published they will stay in a drawer um because I thought like well I think a lot of English teachers do (laughs) I thought to myself well I've read lots of books and I've studied them (laughs) how hard can writing one be it can't be that hard um it was it was really you know quite tough so um so yeah, I've always wanted to write. I wanted to write since I was a kid, uh, but it was only when 
I kind of took some time off teaching that I could pursue it and actually get a book published properly. Mm. So your first book was in, was uh, inspired by uh, a bout of insomnia. So I just want to ask about that because I also um, I had a quite a bad bout of insomnia after the birth of my third child. Yeah. And it's it's a really hard thing to go through. Yeah. So how did that inspire? What was the sort of the nugget of inspiration? Um, so so I've never slept. Well, I've, I've been an insomniac my whole life. You know, as a child, my mother would tell you that I just never went to sleep. I did not see the point of sleep. <laughs> Why would you go to sleep? when all of these amazing, interesting things are happening, I might miss something while I was asleep. Um, so my poor, exhausted mother would, you know, would be up with me um, in the night. And I, I think people confuse insomnia, which you've had an experience of, with just having a couple of nights of bad sleep. That's not insomnia. That's a couple of nights of bad sleep. You'll get over that. Insomnia is that constant, to be almost to the point where you're, your body clock has changed. Um, and actually, I think my body clock is more of a, it's much more of a night owl. So left to my own devices, I would probably go to sleep about two or three and I wouldn't wake up until about nine or 10. Obviously, life doesn't allow you to do that. Life is 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 centered around early birds, even to the point where if you're an early bird, you seem to be, you're, you're seen as also more productive. You're better and, um, you know, you wake up more in the morning, you know, all of those CEOs who go, I wake up at 4am and then I do a workout and then I do yoga and then I write in my journal and then I, you know, all of this, I save the world and then I go to work. Um, all of that is seen as kind of better than being a night owl, which is total rubbish. Um, but for me, what kind of sparked it off was was me thinking to myself, I would just love it if technology could fix this. Technology seems to be able to fix everything. <laughs> you know, it, I don't use a calendar anymore that's in my phone I don't um, have to remember phone numbers anymore they're all in my phone you know my entire social life is in my phone if I get lost I look at my phone so you know wouldn't it be brilliant if there was that kind of magic bullet that it you know something a piece of technology would fix sleeping patterns but unfortunately I mean the recent studies are getting closer to understanding sleep but the brain is such a huge unknowable thing it's, it's almost like the final frontier of scientific knowledge still don't know what happens in the brain still don't know what goes on in 70 percent of it um so you know it's it's something that I knew as well as a writer wouldn't happen probably for quite a while so it's something that I could have fun with and you know one year later an inventor wouldn't come up with with this technology <laughs> That's uh, that is amazing. I mean, so it, I mean, that's a case of writing what you know um, only too well. But is it is it a soup? Can you turn it into a superpower? Because um, we fit. I mean, I've certainly been diagnosed with it, and and perhaps with uh, in Rebecca's case, we, we were musing on this on our way down to uh, to Wiltshire yesterday. Um, a, we have attention deficit disorder, we think, um, and some people, you know, try and turn that around as when you're autistic or something like that you you have a superpower can being um unable to sleep insomnia no, you're working in a, a night well time, yeah. yeah is it is it is it a superpower it's a superpower if you were allowed to work to your natural circadian rhythm i think um but as you're not then you're so 
bone shatteringly tired each day that you don't have the energy for a superpower. You've barely got an energy to remember to put your clothes on properly in the morning <laughs> to get out to work. Um, I think what, well, I hope what I kind of portrayed really well in Sleepless was just how debilitating it is to not be able to sleep for such long periods, to be always kind of coasting by on four hours four or five mm. hours sleep that's that's not enough and it's very damaging actually for for your body because what what happens is you use adrenaline instead so adrenaline gets you going it gets you through the day and then you crash well I used to crash at about kind of five o'clock when I got in from school and I remember I would sit down sometimes and I would literally think to myself I don't think I can get out of the chair <laughs> I'm not even going to be able to feed myself <laughs> um and then of course you get that next adrenaline bit that gets you out of the chair to do your evening and then by that time you're so wired you wouldn't go to sleep in the night anyway so it's this it's this terrible um snake eating its own head it just mm. gets worse and worse and worse and that's partly then you know it comes to a head with some sort of kind of adrenal crash almost you know you do you do get physically ill from it yeah, yeah. and it affects your mental health as well Oh yeah, there's a, there's just this kind of dusty, grey, sticky pall over everything. You know, it's just it's this veil that hangs over the whole yeah, world. Yeah. I have every well, I have some sympathy. I mean, I have obstructive sleep apnea and had it for years. I was doing night shifts at the BBC, so not much sleep anyway. Yeah. Um, driving home at nine in the morning, having worked a twelve-hour shift back to Cambridge, which was crazy from London. Yeah, just totally scrambled the whole time never ever recovered but also if you're not getting enough oxygen into your body because you're not when you're when you go unconscious you're not actually sleeping no, yes, that's interesting because you thought you were asleep but, but no you weren't. because you're... you because you wake up to try and take a breath so you don't die yeah. um and then you go back into the subconscious to be not conscious of, until it's like a really big one and might wake you up yeah yeah but it, yeah i it's a twilight world so yeah it is it is horrific so I have a great sympathy and empathy for that. <laughs> so, I mean, in terms of your writing, do you choose to write at night? I mean, because some authors bang on about, if I'm not at my desk at 5.30 and done 600 words before the kids wake up, then I'm, I've failed. <laughs> I know. Um, I'm in a, a group where we're called Crime Cymru. So we're this Welsh yes. um, cooperative of writers. And um, a lot of them are very much that you know they'll get up at six o'clock and they'll have their cup of tea and they you know they'll do their exercise and they'll sit down at their desk at nine um and then they write until you know two or something in the afternoon and then that's the time when they do all their emails well for me two o'clock was kind of when I start writing so actually I and suddenly I'm getting all these emails from people and we were trying to organize a festival and I was like just like no I'm trying to write now <laughs> and now suddenly you're all you're all pinging these emails to me um so yeah naturally I don't really even start thinking until about half past 10 in the morning I used to turn up to school and be a person at the head of the class but most of my classes knew that you know pre 10 o'clock I was I wasn't that good at answering questions or being sympathetic <laughs> or empathetic um, or anything really um, and then I can go on much later and what I find is that I write until about six or seven and then when I'm going to bed or um, like late at night, I often have the ideas for what I'm writing the next day. Uh, so my, my brain is kind of doing the planning bit then, which isn't yeah. conducive to sleep, but <laughs> we work around it. 
<laughs> I think that that happens a lot with uh, anyone who's creative. Because when when I was doing an art degree, I used to have that. I'd wake up at three o'clock and go, oh, "Yes, yeah, yeah." Always have a notebook by the side mm. of your bed. Not that you'll be able to read your handwriting in the morning. You won't. No, right? that's true. Well, sometimes <laughs> you look in the morning and you think, "What was I thinking?" Yeah, yeah. Kitten, eel, cupcakes. I what? <laughs> yeah. What was going on there? Do you know? <laughs> Well, you mentioned Crime Cymru. Um, we ought to talk about that because um, we nearly we went. Nearly went. Oh. Yeah, we, we let you down. So, um, yeah, my, my, my dad and stepmom have a caravan in Borth and yes. we were going to stay in it, but it yes. wasn't free that weekend. So, we <laughs> no. Well, you've got a chance now in 2025 because it's back. It's every other year in person. So it will be back in 2025. Oh, we'll make Fantastic. sure that we get a spot then. <laughs> well, it's a great spot to have it in Aberystwyth and... Oh, I love Aberystwyth. And we um, spoke to Malcolm Price, who wrote, of course, the fabulous series of books set, you know, sort of uh, uh, almost comic, uh, hard-boiled fiction set in Aberystwyth. Uh, He was a guest of ours. It was a year ago, actually. Yeah, it was, yeah. Um, And and seen as something of a godfather of of the Welsh crime scene. But um, your involvement in it, I mean, you say you get all these emails trying to organise it. it's it's fabulous that it's come together and and the festival is is thriving uh how important is that support network to you oh the support network of other writers is is incredibly important so there's uh you know i'm i'm part of quite a few different groups of of writers another one is um all the writers who debuted with their first book during lockdown we've all kind of stayed in touch yeah um, as well because it's quite a trial by fire it's bad enough being a debut writer try doing it when the world's locked down <laughs> <laughs> um, so we have this brilliant kind of shared trauma <laughs> of doing that and um, so all of that writing community is really important and I would definitely recommend for any writer who wants to get published or is, is writing to find their tribe find their community um, because that's incredibly important in terms of Crime Cymru I think it's really really I can't stress how important it is to have this burgeoning festival and really to put Welsh crime writing on the map because you've got bloody Scotland and you've Mm. got kind of Granite Noir and Newcastle Noir and all that sort of stuff and there was nothing like that in Wales whereas there's a huge wealth of Welsh crime writing talent um, who should be represented. And, and we're starting to see that trickle down now into kind of Waterstones and, you know, the, the decisions that are being made and the, the spotlight that gets shone um, on, on Welsh crime writers. So, yeah, I'm incredibly proud to be part of that team. But the, the festival was the brainchild of Alice Hawkins, who's the historical crime writer. Yes. Fantastic. I, I always wonder about anything... This is, sounds terrible. Anything Welsh? <laughs> uh, no, I mean because uh, I studied at Cardiff for a year as a journalist. Yeah, and the north-south divide is a fairly feels a fairly stark one from as an outsider. Yeah. Is, does that reflect in in the way that crime Cymru? I mean, you know, you're holding your festival in the north of Wales. Well, no, it's mid Wales. Mid Wales, mid Wales. Mm, oh, so yeah. yeah, I mean, you're hedging your bets there, aren't you? <laughs> but but it's a very different. Um, culture and ethos I feel between the south and the north and I don't know if that reflected in the um in the, the nature of what, the organization the oh yeah. the organization yeah oh the, the nature of the organization yeah well I mean we made a conscious decision to set it in to set the festival in Aberystwyth 
um, for those reasons, because we didn't want it to be just a South, uh, just another something that goes on in the capital or goes on in South Wales. Um, because you find that you've got, for example, um, all of the, the film TV companies, they're based in South Wales, they're based in Cardiff, oh, Cardiff Bay. Um, you've got, you know, Capital One, BBC, all of that in, in South Wales. Um, so we, we very much wanted to take the festival to Aberystwyth, not just because it's a fantastic seaside town, <laughs> it was perfect, but because then we are bridging that gap between North and South Wales, that was a deliberate um, decision. I think, I mean, I'm, I'm not one to be able to kind of talk for the whole of Wales, but I think, I hope that that difference between North and South Wales is diminishing, especially as the Welsh language now is being taught across the country. I think a lot of it was language based as well. In North Wales, you tend to get more people speaking Welsh. I'm very proud, rightly so, of speaking Welsh and very protective um, of the language. I think now as, as kind of South Wales catches up with that a little bit, um, you know, we can't, as a country, we can't establish our own um, visibility on the world map without being a united front. So I would hope mm. that North and South Wales are now kind of coming together much much more yeah that's that's fair enough and what about breaking into the wider welsh culture then i mean you've got the the megalith of the eisteddfod um is that something that crime you know crime writers can break into and and make their presence felt because obviously it's a lot you know there's a lot of uh, welsh language and druidic traditions and singing and all that sort of thing yeah um yeah yeah. is is there room for for crime to to break into that sphere do you think so it's it's Welsh language, obviously. So mm. I, I mean, I would say that Crime Cymru, as it stands, probably has more English only writers in it than those writing in Welsh, and we'd love to be able to rectify that and have more um, well uh, crime writers writing um, in Welsh. That would be brilliant. But um, I mean, the yeah, Eisteddfod is it, yeah, it's a dream. I would hope that that crime writing would be involved. But often, crime writing is seen as genre fiction, um, mm. you know, and it's kind of lumped in with. And, and I love sci-fi and fantasy. I'm a massive Terry Pratchett, Neil Gaiman, Good Omens. <laughs> no, I love all of that sort of stuff. Um, you know, I grew up reading all of those books. So. But but genre fiction is is sometimes looked down on a little bit, and I think that's changing as well. You know, we've got uh, you've got incredibly um, sophisticated and emotive writing in the crime genre. I think people just have to recognise that. Yes, I think. I mean, it wouldn't be there would be no question if we were talking about Scottish literature festivals, they would quite happily put Val and Ian yeah. and and a few others, James Oswald, whatever. Uh, you know, Robbie McEwen well, or whatever, um, you know, that's, it's thing, just, it. they just know that, that, you know, these things are, it's not, it, it. I think Scotland's unique in the sense in the United Kingdom that people see crime fiction as an equal to anything else that's being produced there, yeah. but not so the rest of the UK yet. Not, certainly well, not in England. <laughs> what was really good was that um, the Hay Festival uh, was, mm. was a couple of weeks ago and uh, they do a brilliant scheme. It's called the Writers at Work Scheme as part of Hay Festival funded by Literature Wales. And what they do is they pick 10 writers who they see as kind of emerging potential talent and they go on this intensive kind of nine day course in in the hay festival it's brilliant and i was picked to be one of them and Mm. so i thought well that's really interesting because i don't think um, that might not have happened say five or six years ago i think having somebody and i was the only 
commercial <laughs> commercial fiction you know again crime fiction everyone else was a poet or short stories or literary fiction and then there was me um wow that's great loved it I thought that was so encouraging and such a great way for me to talk about that genre to other people as well and to also take on board all of the you know the the links and the and the the practices from from poetry and short stories and, and literary fiction um but it was nice that I was included I thought that was great that's amazing yeah so, that's, that's quite a broad mix of writers as well yeah. so yeah uh, did I mean how did you feel going into that environment because I know that if it were me in the same situation, I'd be feeling terrible imposter syndrome initially. I'd probably overcompensate by opening my mouth to you. <laughs> uh, that kind of thing. It's, it's the same thing I used to feel when I went on a training course at the BBC. And uh, you would be in the same room as half a dozen news correspondents who were these sort of great pillars of intellectual superiority and, the you know, members of the politics or the business unit. And then me from sport. Um, <laughs> rocking up from Salford uh I'd feel terrible imposter syndrome <laughs> how did you feel when you were in that group well I used to <laughs> I used to kind of introduce myself as that almost like you're at Alcoholics Anonymous hello I'm Louise I'm a thriller writer um <laughs> and and to the point that other people picked me up on it it's like stop doing that you're making yourself sound <laughs> like you know you're you're somehow less than the rest of us and um it was but I'm quite bubbly and I'm quite um chatty and again it's a bit like teaching I'm I'm kind of the I can use the comedy as well so I've always been quite confident in those situations and I think um it was it was just it was just kind of talking down that voice in your head wasn't it because Mm -hmm. you know you everyone's got that voice that goes oh you're not quite good enough I'm sure that you know the poets on the course and the short story writers were going oh you're not good enough to be on here you know exactly I haven't got anything published yet you know or something like that there's always that voice and um how much you ignore it uh is how confident you feel um in that situation isn't it how much do you get to rub shoulders with the big star names they they attract to hey yeah, you were allowed in the green room. Um, oh. nice. um I was I was so close to Margaret Atwood. I knew wow. I couldn't talk to her. I just couldn't do it because she was having a cup of tea. She'd just come from an event. I was like, <laughs> You're Margaret Atwood, you get to have a cup of tea and just relax for a bit. You don't need somebody in your face. Um Richard Osman, you can't miss Richard Osman, obviously. Nope, true. I oh. met him, I gave him a Hobeck mug. <laughs> He was lovely. I he was he was great. Um, Helena, best one. Helena Bonham Carter walked past me. Wow! And totally Helena Bonham Carter. You know how you think sometimes it might be a bit put on. No, it was the massive hair. It was the crazy clothes. It was the oh, darling, yes, thank you. I'll just go into this room here. Thank you very much, and all of that. And it was just brilliant. I was again kind of open mouth, but we did also have very kindly lots of big name um, authors came to speak to us. Um, in our oh sorry something's gone on my screen there you can still see me um, yes, you can. so uh, it lots of authors came to speak to us in our little kind of workshop as well so we had authors like Douglas Stewart who wrote Shaggy oh. Bane. Yeah, Shaggy Bane yeah, yeah and oh, 
I'm very oh. jealous because that, that book was amazing. It, yeah, it, he was just the most lovely, lovely man. Started off in fashion, which I didn't yes, know. Yes, I know. Yeah, I mean, he yeah. left school at 16 and went straight into fashion, yeah. didn't he? Very similar to me, as you can tell by my <laughs> rumpled um, Adidas <laughs> like shirt. Story, story, yes, just like story. And he writes, and it was his first novel, and he writes so beautifully and so with heart. It's amazing. I can't believe his talent. <laughs> so yeah. I'm very jealous. Yeah, he was, he was, he was just lovely. Um, and Natalie Haynes, um, whose new book, is, she's the mythologist, so she mm. writes, um, her new book is Stone Blind. Oh, I read last Christmas, the, the, the women in the Greek mythology yes. book. It was brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and she is just a powerhouse. She was just so, well, she's a stand-up comedian. So she oh, did, I didn't know that. Really? So cool. She did a set in, um, at the festival as well. She did oh, a, a stand-up set. Uh, and and just so on the ball and so kind of, you know, didn't take any uh, rubbish from anyone. You know, it, it wasn't all about waiting for the muse and all of this sort of stuff. You know, it was it was also a business and it was, you know, it was something that you had to knuckle down and, and do as well. So, yeah, yeah it's incredibly inspiring. Yeah. I mean, you know, women in Greek. That book is brilliant. No, I mean, it usually ends badly. It's, I, it, I kept it, telling you about it, didn't I? I kept saying, oh, this no, is... I did. I did ancient history at university. Um, yeah, I mean, it's... yeah, they didn't have a good time of it. No, no, I mean, it's, it's usually parables for, you know, I mean, a lot of them were about stories designed to tell men not to let women have a say. I mean, you know, look what happens if you do. Yeah, is, yeah, is, that's true. Yeah. Anyway, look, look, look we, we 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 ought to um, mention that, you know, this is a very big week for you because your latest book has just come out, <laughs> The Hotel, uh, your third uh, book for HQ. Tell us about how you, you got signed up by them, because this is a, an interesting tale. Oh, yeah. So um, as you do, I approach I, I wrote Sleepless. Um, and I thought to myself, right, it's ready. I'm going to send it off, which was way too soon. It was, it should have been read uh, a little bit more, should have been edited more. Um, so I got roundly rejected lots of times and fair enough because um, I should have been. But what I did was then I started to, well, first of all, I edited it properly. And then I started to go to lots of festivals and things, hoping to meet agents and, you know, get information and do workshops. And I was, so I was doing all that sort of learning stuff. And I went to a festival called the Prima Donna Festival, which is in Suffolk. And it was the first year of it being set up. And it was set up by a group of very um, influential women who work in books and TV um, in, in that industry. And so, and they wanted to create um, a festival which felt a little bit more open for everybody, where the VIPs weren't quite so quickly shoved into the green room, a bit like, you know, at the Hay Festival. Um, you know, whereas you could you could kind of walk around and mingle and talk, and it was very welcoming and, and warm, and it was. And the, the woman who um, is the executive publisher of my imprint, HQ, she's one of the founders of Prima Donna. So she was there holding workshops. And I went to the workshop and, and nobody else turned up. It was just me to start off with. So she said, oh, well, you know what I'll do. I'll just, I'll, have you got anything on you that I can read? <laughs> um, and I'll, I'll read your work. And I was, and me being me and a teacher and very prepared, I had a proposal with me. So I had the pitch and I had um, the first three chapters and I had the synopsis. And she read it 
sat and we were sat on the side of this Lido in this country estate and she read this this synopsis and she said oh no I, I am interested in that send it to me and then um, we'll take it from there and and that's what I did so you know so many things you know so many things could have not happened for me to have that moment you know I might not have had anything on me mm. you know, I might not have had anything to show her um or you know if she might not have chosen to do those workshops and every year now at the prima donna festival she does these one-to-ones with people um and it's just it's just lovely because she takes so much time you know it takes hours for her to get through uh, all of these people um and yeah the it was it was myself and it was um, another um woman as well we both got publishing contracts from from that festival that year brilliant i love that story that is a great story yeah. but it just i mean there's there's one way of looking at it. You can say it's lucky, but at the same time, you were prepared. Yeah. You were in the right place at the right time because you chose to be. So Do you know what? If that was me, I would just be like, oh, oops, oh, well, I've got my phone. <laughs> <laughs> my book I'm reading. Does that show that I'm a good writer? <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. Uh, and and in terms of that relationship with HQ, now your third book out, how's that gone, you know, going into the the publishing machine? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, you do go into the publishing machine. And I think, I think there should be and there are resources for writers, but I think that they do need to be a little bit more for writers, just to manage their expectations of going into the publishing world. You know, not all of us are going to have the marketing spend, for example, that's been spent on Yellow Face this year. <laughs> I'm know. reading it now. I'm reading it. You're reading it now. I've read it too. The marketing has worked. Yeah, <laughs> it'll come yeah. I just thought it's so eye-catching with it's the eyes brilliant. on it. Yeah, it is. It's it's fantastic. But not every author is going to have that. There's no, mm. there's not enough marketing spend to do that. So, you know, you have to start thinking as an author, what what's the stuff that you feel comfortable doing? Do you like doing things like this? You know, can you do Zoom stuff? And online stuff do you like real life stuff you know do you are you confident as a speaker and if you're not then obviously don't go towards those things don't make yourself miserable <laughs> by trying to put yourself in front of an audience luckily again uh, being a teacher and kind of working through all of my neuroses when I was 23 24 uh, to do with public speaking I'm fine now public speaking probably more sociable um and you know nicer with a group of people than I am with to my husband so so um it's it, it you know you have to think what you can do and what you can bring to the table but I'm lucky because HQ you know they're, they're brilliant they're brilliantly supportive um and you know for example sleepless it it when it was first out it as an ebook it, it was much more popular than anybody really expected and HQ kind of really did kind of jump into gear and we got it into supermarkets and stuff like, you know, mm. off the back of that. So, um, and I think also as a writer, think about these are relationships that these people, you are probably going to meet 10 years down the line, you know, publishing is a small world and obviously stand your ground. And if you think that something is wrong, then definitely, you know, make that point, but there are ways of making those points without making enemies you you want to nurture relationships you want to be somebody that editors and agents go oh I wish I you know I wish I worked with her you know so you, you yeah think about all of that and again being a teacher that's 
you know, so familiar to me because I was talking to parents all the time. And, you know, you had to be professional. You couldn't just, you know, spout off to a parent and tell them that they were utterly wrong and an idiot. Because <laughs> it's their child, you know, obviously they're going to feel really emotive about it. And they may t- take that out on you. But it doesn't mean that you reciprocate. No. And it also goes back to what you were saying as a teacher that you taught your children. Be kind. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and email is so tricky. You, you can never get the tone right in email. You know, and I, I have ended up, I'm, I wasn't used to it to start off, but you do end up doing the whole publishing thing of putting kisses at the end, and, you know, lots of exclamation marks. I never did that as a teacher to really get used to doing it. Um, but it is, it's a way of fostering, you know, relationships and, yeah. showing that you, you know, you're not being harsh. You've got to adopt your inner Bonham Carter. <laughs> you, you, you have to channel oh, Helena definitely yeah. yeah I just want to do that in my day-to-day life to be honest yeah, I'm I need more hair. Happy with that. I, yeah. I just need more hair <laughs> <laughs> so uh, just to, to bring things around to the present day the new books out I mean what's your next project have you got anything lined up Oh, so I've got another book. So I've got um, the fourth book in my contract with HQ. So I'm I'm currently writing that now. I'm about 60,000 words into that one. So I'll be finishing that one soon. And then what happens is you go out of contract. So then you, if you're going back to your publisher, you would go back to your publisher with ideas of what you want to do next and they would sign you up. Or if you feel that maybe what you're thinking of writing next isn't their wheelhouse, then you write the whole book and your agent looks at it and you work on it together and then you send it out to other publishers. So, yeah, you go into a, a bit more of a nebulous time once your contract ends. Is, is that a, a, an area of stress for you? I mean, is that is it inducing anxiety at this point? No, no, it doesn't really, because, you know, it's not it's not the end of the world. If they don't want my books after, you know, I'll I've got an agent still and I can I can still write I've got a computer and a brain and <laughs> you know I can I can write something else and try again so so yeah no I'm I'm fairly I'm fairly resilient um in that way you know it's just like it's you know it's like I was saying you know you can plan a perfect lesson and the wasp comes into the classroom yeah you know so you, you just work around know. the wasp you, you shoot it back out again That's yeah. right. well here is the audio version of a wasp entering the room <laughs> Um, because of, you got wind. No, <laughs> it is time for the. Well, some people would argue it's the highlight. Other people not so. The but, low light. But people, I think, hang on for Rebecca's random question. Okay, so today's random question is inspired by my son's lunch. So my eldest son is at university, but he's at home at the moment, okay. and I heated up a pasty for him. Right. <laughs> so my question is. What would you put inside a pasty for it to be your personal perfect pasty? What filling? Oh, oh, that's a good. Well, um, totally random. My, very random. One of my husband's um, random business uh, things. We've done many things over the years. Was we ran a pasty shop? Really? Oh, a year. We or need so, to talk yeah. more. <laughs> yeah so um so gosh this is giving me flashbacks now um so I can't look at a pasty since then um so I think I would probably have a sweet pasty actually because it seems a perfect thing so I think I would have um yeah just kind of like fruit strawberries berries some sort of ice cream obviously you'd have to Ooh. chill it then but I think that yeah, would but... work very well 
a little bit of meringue in there, perhaps for a bit oh, of Oh, you'd love that. Sort of a pavlova <laughs> pasty then. Pavlova pasty, yeah. I that has a ring to it. I bet that's possible to do. I bet you can achieve that yeah, somehow. Yeah, can. If you can do baked Alaska, there's going to be a similar principle, isn't it? Yeah, just shove some pastry on it. It'll be fine. <laughs> I mean, who knew that we were going to uncover this this hidden part of your past yeah. uh, in yes. that question? That That is astonishing. I wish we'd known that earlier because we'd have just talked about pasties. Yeah, it's a bit of a <laughs> Well, what would be your perfect well, pasty then? Well, as you know, I mean, one of the ways that I got together with Rebecca, <laughs> we and, and uh, I, I do apologise to the people who listen to this podcast who've heard this these stories a million times, but I was trying to woo Rebecca. I was married to someone else and she was married to someone else. Uh, and I was trying to impress through writing a book for your eight-year-old, then eight-year-old, now 13, Toby. Mm-hmm. And I wrote a book called The Great Cornish Pasty War. <laughs> and... Um, it's not been published, uh, but um, I need to go back to it at some point. And it was set on the premise that Devon stole the original recipe from Cornwall for pasties. And as a result of that, Cornwall, this is long before lockdown, basically came to a halt. No one came out of their homes. The adults just couldn't cope. It was like a complete mental breakdown, like a, you know, a plague upon Cornwall, <laughs> the loss of this recipe. A bit like if the Ravens leave the Tower of London, you know, UK falls or whatever, England apocalypse. And um, it was a kind of famous five adventure where they went and had to fight the Royal Marines based at Limstone Commando in Devon to get the recipe back at the end. So, you know, and, and the, the, I uh, really don't want to give all the plot away, but basically there is a, 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 a they use some Cornish magic called the Amulet of Ur, <laughs> which allows. <laughs> the animals to now converse of Cornwall converse with the humans. And, and, and so it's an army of animals, essentially wildlife going in and facing the Marines. Um, so pasties are very important to me in terms of, uh, Your look, pasty. well, look, to be honest, you can't go far wrong with the traditional if it's really well done. And I love ordering them from Cornwall on mail order. Oh yeah. We've had pasties come in a big polystyrene box. <laughs> from Cornwall. And I remember eating one Specialist from Falmouth pasty. once. I, I went down there for an interview to to be a journalist and um, I picked up a pasty and it was so good that I decided that I would take a week to eat it because it was, it, you know, each mouthful was such a joy. By the end of the week, it was really mank. I was going to say, you probably had But that's how, much, that's how much pasties mean to me. Right. Okay. Well, mine would be a probably a pickled onion cheese pasty. Oh, classic, yeah. I, I do like pickles, you see. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. So we haven't really come up with, I mean, you've come up with something inventive, the uh, Pavlova pasty, um, <laughs> or the the Alaskan pasty. Uh, but, yeah, uh, I was such a... To it, doesn't it? Louise's Alaskan pasty. Pas- pav- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, too hard to say. People wouldn't be able to order it. <laughs> amazing, amazing. Uh, Louise, um, as we draw this interview to a close, where can people find you online? Oh, um, so I'm I'm everywhere over social media, so Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. So I'm Louise Mumford, author, Instagram, Facebook, and I am Louise underscore Mumford at Twitter, which is a bit complicated. And I also have a website, um, louisemumfordauthor.com, where you can sign up. And I do probably about a quarterly newsletter with like little competitions and giveaways and just random gossip that I have as well. Um, so yeah, anywhere, everywhere. I'm all over the place, basically. There isn't a social media that oh, I'm not on TikTok yet. Sorry. Oh, yet. 
<laughs> yeah, I can't get into TikTok. I'm hoping that some government shuts it down before I've got to actually get myself together. <laughs> I know how you feel. I know how you feel. Look, Louise, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Really enjoyable interview there with Louise Mumford. And who knew she also was involved with a pasty shop? That absolutely blew my mind. It totally blew my mind. And I think uh, I must be psychic, though, with my random questions sometimes. Yeah, it does feel that way sometimes. <laughs> it really does. I honestly had no idea. That's extraordinary. What's, um, what's on our agenda this week in terms of who's our guest next week? Well, we're going to be talking to a writer called Guy Hale. And, in fact, we have some of Guy's books. Yeah, he very kindly sends sends books and he sends CDs to go with it. I the know. music that inspired the books. It's lovely, isn't it? So I'm looking forward to talking to Guy to find out. I wonder if we're going to play blues together. Maybe <laughs> that's something, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll just strum out some chords in the key of E. I'll do Smelly Cat. Oh, yeah, that that, that will work. <laughs> um, yeah, it'd be lovely to talk to, uh, to Guy. Next week, yes. Yeah, we're not doing so many travel things this week. We're not going to go and look at printers again. No, I don't think we've got any travel booked this week at all. Which is Waitrose. <laughs> no, absolutely. And, uh, you know, it'd still be a busy week. Uh, we ought to mention that we actually published a book this week, which was Henshaw 5. We did. And um, the first Henshaw competition that we've been running closed this week as well. So we have spent this weekend <laughs> reading short stories and a lot of them. <laughs> Shall I make the confession as to what I did on Saturday? I think you should, yes. All right, okay. This regular listeners to this show will know that I have attention deficit disorder and it's something I am trying to get on top of in a major way. But it reared its head again. <laughs> uh, and you might think, uh, you know, and you'd be probably right in thinking, you bleeding idiot. But basically, Rebecca left me with the, ch- the task of reading the remaining 40 stories from the Henshaw competition that had come in over the last sort of week of the of, or yeah, so of the so competition. I'd read coming up to 70 by this point. Right. I, I was going to Loughborough for the day with number two son and I didn't have enough time to read them. So you kindly offered to finish the reading off yeah. for me. Yeah, yeah. This is the first pass read, looking at all the stories. And I duly sat down. You sent me an email with the with two attachments. And I opened up the one which had the stories in. I just started reading and, and I had sort of uh, made a set of notes on my phone as I went. And I read and I read and I read and I did them in blocks of five. So I did five at a time. Then I get up and I just sort of go make a coffee or I go out and stretch my legs outside or whatever it might be. Come back and do another five. Come back and do another five. Over and over. <laughs> you came home at about uh, just shy of five o'clock from your exhausting day around campus at mm. Loughborough and the journey and all that sort of thing. And she said, how have you been getting on? I went, yeah, I've got to the letter I. Now, alarm bells rang at this point in my head because I thought, 40 stories is on letter I. That's only about 12. <laughs> and I thought, but you sounded like, in your messages, you sounded like you'd made really good progress. Five and a break, five and a break. And I thought, it doesn't add up. Something's wrong. I'd read 40 stories. I had. I'd read best part of 40 stories. Yeah. Except it's the ones you'd already read. Yeah. I hadn't read the email properly. I didn't notice there was a second folder that contained the ones that I that were fresh and hadn't been read. And so I have spent, up to this point, most of today 
doing exactly that, playing catch-up. Now, it's fair to say I have one of my little ADD epifits. <laughs> Slammed the door, jumped in the car, drove off. Uh, I was angry with myself. I was angry unfairly with you. Um, but basically, if you have attention deficit disorder to the extent I have it, you miss things. You miss important things, like information saying, I've sent you the ones I've read as a guide as to what the standard is, and then there are a further 40. <laughs> of course, Muggins here did not take that detail in, and I paid for it today. So I spent all weekend, I have read over 100 short stories now. You have. You're the world's expert on short story writing now. And it's, yeah, I mean, you know, it was sometimes a pleasure, other times not so. It was eye-opening. There's a lot of talent out there, by goodness. Lot, yes. There's a lot of very talented people. I mean, there, there are some who've gone through to the next round that we both felt were just brilliant, absolutely brilliant stories. And I think we've also had a big debate when we were going through the scores and you know, between us. And this now goes on to some of our Hobeck authors and, and our judges uh, for further appraisal. But we, you know, we've basically taken 100 stories and got it down to 40. Yeah, I think roughly more than a hundred actually. More yeah. than a hundred, something. So in that sort of bracket, that um, what qualities are we looking for? And we had some divergence on on what we thought. But for me, what's important is that a short story is a story, and that it, it you know it does have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Mm. And some things, some of the entries didn't deliver that for me, and. That was my that was my benchmark. Then you can look at all the other aspects, but quite a few things hit the word count and fizzled out mm. without a res- resolution. So, you know, for me that that was that, that dented someone's chances. Say, and also for me, and I, I don't know whether this is justified or not, but if there were lots of typos and spelling errors or grammatical errors, I would think, mm, even if you're a brilliant story. It's not difficult to check these mm. things. Um, so it, it was absolutely fascinating because, you know, so many a breadth of topics and a lot of magical realism in there, a lot of science fiction, a lot of parables. It's historical as well. Historical. Yeah, uh, satire. Yeah. Um, it was it was extraordinary. And emotion, very emotional as well. Oh, Actually, yeah, yeah. It sort of got me in the heart. Yeah, 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 yeah. Some bizarre. I'm not going to mention what they were. There was two <laughs> stories that were really bizarre. But <laughs> Yes, I mean, it was a very wide range of, of, of subjects. But the imagination of these people yeah. is just and, and, phenomenal. And the talent, and the talent. Yes, you know, there's the a talent. lot of good writing talent there. And the willingness to, do, to try. You know, yeah. everyone's going to be at a different level. And even if they aren't good enough to go through to the, to the next pass, they had a go. And maybe their next story will, or the next story, mm. as they get better and better and better. So I just love the fact that people are giving it a go from all walks of life, all over the world as well. We had entries from Korea, Australia, New Zealand, America, UK, France, all over. It's brilliant. Mm. Yeah, it is. It is amazing. Um, and we're at the fulcrum of it now. There's the Henshaw short story competition. When we read the stories, we didn't know who had written them. We read them anonymously. We don't know what the you know where the writer came from or anything about them or their um, credentials. Because some people did put their credentials in the covering email, but I made sure that that was all blocked mm. out. Mm. 
Um, so we read them blind, and it was a fascinating experience. And I think you actually quite enjoyed it, didn't you? Despite the little well, hiccup. Well, it's isn't it funny? I mean, you know, in a way, to be able to read that many stories over a forty-eight hour period required me to battle through attention deficit disorder. Got a you know test match that was uh, going on at the same time, and all sorts of other distractions, and managing to retain my focus for those hours that it took to read all those was very valuable. Um, thank you, Siri. I didn't <laughs> ask you to say anything. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's one of those, it was a fascinating experience. Anyway, we ought to wrap up there. So we'll talk to, to Guy Hale uh, for next week yep. on the Hopcast Book Show. Please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you're joining us for the first time, you've enjoyed it, we've enjoyed making it for you. So just uh, click subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. That would be terrific. Or follow is the other option, I guess, in most places. Uh, and uh, we'll be back with you. So I've been Agent Hobart. I've been Rebecca Collins. Don't forget to go to our website to find out all about Hobeck Books, www.hobeck.net, or indeed archpub.net if you wish to uh, draw on our uh, publishing experience. But apart from that, it's uh, been a wonderful week. Thank you so much for joining us. And we wish you a wonderful and creative week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobeck.net. You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Indie Spirit.